Scene 13, Pushing the Envelope, Michael Finney, read by Joshua Stenkamp, followed by original audio recording. Driving past motorcycles, sandy beaches, and one of the most famous NASCAR speedways means that you are in Daytona Beach, Florida. Every November, Daytona Magic has its annual convention on this prominent East Coast beach of Florida. Being that it's early November, the skies are somewhat gloomy and the wind off the ocean is crisp. Jason and I found our parking spot at the top floor of a local parking garage to the hotel where the convention was being held. We made our way down to the lobby. Wandering through the convention halls, we see familiar faces from the Genie convention from the month prior and we make small talk with friends. Out of the corner of my eye, I see the man we came to interview, Michael Finney. He greets us with this warm hug and a friendly hello. We walk the halls for a few minutes, trying to find a good spot with some privacy away from the bustling crowds. The hotel cafe was empty as they were preparing for the dinner rush. We sat down next to a wall of windows overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. We sat at a small square table with a couple of servers making noise in the distance. All right, perfect. We're here at Daytona Beach with Mr. Michael Finney. How are you doing today? Not too bad. A little tired, but good. Um, so we usually, we usually start it off pretty simple and just kind of lead into it. How did you get your start in the performance? Um, really quite innocent. And the, the story is out there. But I was a, a bartender. Backgrounds, food, and beverage, and hospitality. And I was a good bartender. I had articles written on my ability not only as a bartender, but to engage people and to um, develop a clientele. And, you know, I was pretty quick-witted, and I had little hooks playing people's favorite music, my clients that would come in. I, I got to know them on a very intimate level, and so I could read them pretty good. And, and so I was happy being a bartender. I always said, if this magic thing goes in the toilet tomorrow, I'll go back to Tindon Bar even now because I had such a good time with it. It's a social job. It's almost like you're on stage. So I got a lot of training uh, inadvertently as a bartender, just talking to strangers and presenting myself as a bartender. So when you had a magic trick to hide behind, how easy can that be? So uh, I used what I learned as a bartender and my personality developed as a bartender, and the magic just brought out the refined part of it all. That's how I got started. And it was, it was uh, doing tricks behind the bar to make better tips. That's all I wanted was to make better tips. And so when I look back now and see where I'm at and where I've come, um, I sure got better tips than I ever thought I was going to get. So um, it's, it's just, it's not something I did as a kid. It's not something I ever dreamed of. I come from a small farming community. My father worked in a factory. I thought I was going to work in a factory. And so this is all... This is all new. I was married for two years before I got into this. So my wife has shared the experience with it from day one to now. And she's a very big part of my success. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Lori. When you're on stage, do you... When you're on stage, do you find that that you are Michael Fenny on stage? Or is it, is it yourself or is it a... a no, you know, um, as a kid growing up in high school, you know... I was born with a cleft palate, so um, like anybody with a, any kind of a noticeable birth defect or physical effect, I got I got abused. You know, I got picked on. I got called names, and so I became very quick witted, and I could defend myself verbally. So 
I was funny as a kid. And my classmates will tell you that I was funny in junior high school and in high school especially. Um, that was my defense mechanism. You know, that was my protection. And so to a lot of my classmates, it, it didn't really surprise them that I ended up um, I ended up being a funny guy or being a comedian. And it was really weird because I took public speaking in my senior year in high school. And um, I went to speech therapy class a lot uh, to learn to pronunciate certain words. And I even, I miss a lot of words these days, but I don't hear it. Only you hear it. But people tell me it's part of my charm. It's part of my vulnerability. It's, it's part of what allows me to get away with what I get away with when other magicians wouldn't get away with it. So what turned out to be a, what I thought was just a real tough draw of the cards as a kid turned out to end up being a blessing as an adult and, and being able to share my story with other people and inspire other people uh, to just, you know, get over whatever it is you think because everybody has an Achilles heel. Nobody is perfect. Some people show, and so you learn to deal with it. It might make you stronger. It might make you a better person. It might make you more sensitive to other people's needs and desires and, and imperfections. And so all of that is what rounded me out. And just the character developed on stage. It developed over weeks, months, years of continually going on stage and trying to get better at what I was doing, not knowing that I was trying to get better at what I was doing. It was just, it was all I knew. It was, it was a path that I was thrown down. Because as a bartender, I would get invited to people's homes on weekends, doctors, lawyers, and judges. I worked in a very high-end restaurant, 36 stories high. I did uh, drinks for General Hag. I, I poured drinks for some of the, the owner of Sonic restaurants. The most influential and important people in, you know, our corporate society at the time, which was actually the late 70s, 77, 78, 79. And so these guys would invite me to their house to tin bar and, oh, Mike, be sure to bring that little bag of tricks with you. So I, I realized soon that it wasn't really the drinks I was pouring. It was the magic and my personality that he really liked. And so I went home one day and I said, you know, Lori, I said, I think I can make a living doing this magic stuff. And that's all it was, was magic stuff. <laughs> so I started out as a close-up magician. I already was pretty good at it. But I wanted to do bigger things because close-up is just for four or five or six people. So I developed my dove act. I, I didn't know any better. You know, I, I did a dove act and uh, I had a 30-minute kid show. And next thing you know, I get an amusement park gig. This kid that's got the gig, he invites me to come out and fill in for him. The owners of the amusement park say, hey, we want you next year. I felt bad, but he was 17, living at home with his parents, and I was 24 uh, with a wife paying my bills. So I didn't feel bad for long. <laughs> and I took advantage of it, and I spent two years doing a dove act, five body loads, uh, two doves, two more doves, and a white rabbit, 13-minute silent act. And then, lo and behold, I saw Lance Burton on Johnny Carson one night, and I went outside and I opened up my dove cage and I said, you guys, Lance lives in Vegas. <laughs> he knows how to treat you. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a dove worker after seeing Lance. And, and I had to find a, another niche. So I started going to open mic nights and, and talent contests and dragging all my friends and my parents to these 
shithole bars and having to watch me go on with a bunch of other guys that were trying the best they could to, to make it somehow. And, and um, I won a bunch of contests, and then I met a comedian, and I can't even tell you his name, but he said, man, Mike, you got to go to L.A. and audition. You could probably do this in some comedy clubs. And so I did. I went over to L.A. and I auditioned, and, um, man, I came back home, and I told Lori, I said, if nothing happens, I'll find another bartending job, and I'll always have this magic tricks to do, and we'll continue on. We're okay. We, we had a fun ride. But I wasn't home a week, and the phone rang, and I started working for the last stops. And then uh, in 86 or 87, I did the Desert Magic Seminar, Complete Conjurer, and I took fourth place. And it was the first time I'd ever stepped into the magic world. And I met everybody. I met Siegfried and Roy, and I met all these guys. And I took fourth place, man. And it, the Complete Conjurer was close-up magic and stage magic, platform magic. And I was there with ev all the guys, all these guys that I had read about, seen in some of the magazines, but not really been around. And the next year was the comedy competition. I took second place and I never competed after that. You know, competitions are so, you know, um, they're just right place, right time, whoever it is, whatever it is. And after my experience on Star Search, I knew competitions weren't legitimate. You know, I, I should have won Star Search. Everybody in the production company said that. But the guy I beat my first time on, Al Lubell, won. So I kind of like being the guy that should have won. I don't know what I would have done with the $100,000 at the time, but I made some great friends. Uh, Billy Dean, a, a, a country western singer, has had a great career, and he's my friend. And it was the year, two years after Sawyer Brown, so I got to know who they were. And it was a great experience. I have great memories. I mean, uh, but no more competitions after that. It just, I mean, I've been called half a dozen times for America's Got Talent. And that's the hokiest show on, on, on the world. And God bless the guys that win it. But how can a six-year-old kid compete against an adult for a Las Vegas million-dollar contract? Right there, you got to scratch your head and go, something ain't right in Venice. And you just, uh, you know, you just be grateful for what you've had. And I've, I've been acknowledged by the magic world for a few awards, and, and that's nice. You know, eventually they got to give them to somebody new. They can't keep giving them to Mike Caveney, and they can't keep giving them to Whit Hayden. Eventually they got to throw in a couple of new guys there once in a while. Whether we're deserving of it or not, I don't know. But uh, I was happy to get uh, the awards from the Magic Castle for Parlor Magic and Comedy Magic, and that was I, – I got that, and then – to be acknowledged by my peers, that was probably the best, you know, and uh, top 10 comedy magic acts in the world. And then Jay Blackstone giving me the World Comedy Magic Act of the Year. I don't need any more awards. I, I, that's all served its purpose. And anybody will tell you the awards look great on the wall at home, but they don't mean anything out in the real world. You know, it's what are you now? What are you doing now? So it's been a great ride. And uh, it's been I turned around and it was like yesterday that I, I got here, you know, and, and it's all so fresh. And, and I remember every step. I remember every misstep, even the one that's just happened to me, you know, in, in May of this year, um, which I've been having to deal with. It's a struggle, man. And you think that's when you get to the pinnacle of your career and you're doing the best you can possibly do. There's somebody out there waiting to knock you down. They, nobody wants success unless they're having success. And, uh, it's a brutal dog-eat-dog -dog world nowadays. It's much tougher to break into the business. There's no more comedy clubs. There's no more open mic nights. There's no more talent contests locally where you can go and stretch your legs and learn. So I was very lucky to have the opportunities that I've had. 
doing, doing the comedy clubs, was there, did you ever just go out and just try new material or was it constant rehearsal at home and then see if it no, was you just banging it out and trying it? I didn't have time to rehearse. <laughs> I got so lucky I was being booked 30 weeks, 40 weeks a year, 44 weeks a year I was on the road. So I, it was it was in movement, in motion, in action. I was adjusting and learning on the fly. A lot of my lines that I have that I use, they came in a natural performance in a situation that happened. And uh, voila, there's that line. And as it was happening, I'm going, oh, that's a keeper. You know, I'm going to be able to use this line tomorrow night and the night after that and you know, in any time when it's in good discretion, you know, and when in doubt, you leave it out. Um, and so I just, nah, I didn't, I didn't have time to rehearse. If I did, it was on Lori. And that's where I learned to do my watch deal was I, I bruised her little wrists up learning how to do the watch deal, you know, and, and she would tell me, no, you're for, I'm, you're hurting me. You're too tight. You're holding my hand too tight. You're gripping me too tight. And she helped me with everything. So, um, most of it happened live and in person. There wasn't time to rehearse it. I, I would get the tricks. And, and then I had help from, from Jay Marshall, Johnny Thompson, Billy McComb, Charlie Miller. Um, some of the greatest acts in the world would take me aside and go, you know, I think if you try this, you're going to use less work. And even Jay Leno helped me write my very first stand-up joke which ended up being a 52-minute straight stand-up comedy album called No Tricks. And so I I just, I took everything and I swallowed it up and I, I tasted it and I spit out what I didn't like and I swallowed what I did like. And this is what you see now is 36 years of, of hard work. No bullshit. I've worked hard. Um. My favorite question is, but, but before you go out on stage, is there anything that you do prior to walking out? Yeah, man. I turn on Pandora, and I uh, I put on the Doobie Brothers or the Almond Brothers. <laughs> Every single show. Yes, that's the music I grew up with, and I have it on on my iPod, and I play it, and, and that's the music makes me feel good. And when I go on stage, I'm I'm excited to be on stage. I want to be on stage. I don't get nervous. Not under any circumstance do I get nervous. I am excited to go on stage and to entertain another group of strangers and make them become my newest friends. You, you kind of answered the question uh, earlier, but when you're developing your effects for your show, um, as far as your performance, how much is... How much is scripted? Did you script all of it? Or was it those happy little accidents where you say a line, you go, oh, I really like that. I'm going to keep that in the show. I mean, is You know what? I don't have any background. I don't have any knowledge of how to script. I'm just now learning how to write stand-up comedy for the first time. Get a premise, do three lines about it, and then move on to the next premise and the next three lines, and that's how you really write stand-up. I'm just now learning that. And if I'd have known that a long time ago, I probably would have been a lot further along in my career and maybe not even been doing magic anymore, just be doing stand-up. I didn't know anything. I, I, I learned everything on the fly. I, and that's as honest as I can be with you. And so if I say this to you, I want the guys that read this book or whatever, man, don't put so much pressure on yourself. You think you have to structure every single thing when actually performing is where a lot of it's going to come to you. You're going to learn the good stuff on stage and you're going to learn the bad stuff on stage. 
And so don't don't spend so much time at home. It's like these card guys, these card finger flippers. Man, they're great. But if you if I've seen four or five card tricks, that's all I want to see out of you. I'm pretty sure you're an expert at cards. What else can you do to entertain me? You know, because I'm tired of looking at the pasteboards. You know, show me coins, show me SpongeBob, show me something I haven't seen. And so, with the comedy thing and writing and developing a character, you can't stand in front of a mirror and, and try to do your character just be funny. And you've got to have response. You've got to have immediate reaction to what it is you're doing. And the only way to do that is to get out there and do it. And so that's why I do, early on in my career, I did a lot of charity work. Um, I did a lot of freebies, you know, just to get stage time, just to, to develop stage presence. And then the character, you know, this guy, this guy, um, he just started to evolve, you know, unconsciously. And, and I laugh when people tell me that character, that's not a character, man. That's, that's the deep me. That's the Michael that I want, you know, that was developed over these years that he just learned to become this guy on stage that was, that became his persona, i.e. character. And, and it really, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard if you just get up there and, and let it learn to let it develop itself. Really, um, I didn't have any acting instructors. I didn't have anybody teach me things but my mentors. My mentor was Opie Strom, and he said, "Michael, you're a diamond in the rough, and I'm going to add some facets to you." So he taught me how to be humble with my magic and my in my comedy. Um, my other instructor was Jack Sutherland of Sun Magic who was very instrumental in Harry Anderson's career. And he took me under his wing and he taught me so many things. And he was the first to tell me, you're going places, you're going to make it, kid. He died. I get very emotional. Great man. And then uh, my the guy who taught me my first trick, Bob Shaw. He was a war hero. He served on Iwo Jima. And he's the guy that I paid the $100 for my very first thumb tip. And I learned the respect magic and the secrets. And so, you know, all these people shaped me. And then the other, the rest of it was just hard, hard work. Just hard. You know, I spent so many weeks away from my wife trying to perfect this and learn how to do this and make a living at the same time. You know, I was out there for the money and the character and everything developed because I wanted to make the money. It was a hustle. I got into make, I got into magic to make better tips. I got into it to make the money. I wasn't going to work in a factory and I wasn't going to work for somebody else. I'm basically a pretty lazy person, I think. I'm just being honest. I wasn't going to bust my ass if my brain could do that work for me. So my brain learned the magic, learned to perform, and that's how I got to where I'm at. That's how I do what I do. And and it's just, it's, it's hard. I think it's hard for me to explain it to other people and let them grasp it. But it's a different time now. Man, it's 30 years later, and I, 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 would, I would hate to be starting out right now. I really would. It would be very difficult to start out now and not have those other avenues to have started on to get to where I'm at now. I find it very difficult. And it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. We're all fighting for the cruise ship jobs. Um, the, the corporate jobs have gone away because of politically correctness has stifled everybody in every facet of life. You can't. Nobody wants to laugh at themselves anymore. Uh, you have to be so careful with what you say that you might offend some 16-year-old person that has never even stepped foot in the real world and doesn't know what it's like to get punched in the gut and have to get back up again. These kids are all living in a fantasy world today. They all think they're entitled. And it, it's all part of making it. Because you got to be careful as heck these days. 
it's just it's it's a struggle. And even now, and then you think just when you got it whipped, you know, <laughs> man, shit's gonna come and haunt you. So, how does your does your character or your act uh, shift depending upon the venue? Or do you pretty much like See, they're hiring you, and they know that's what the beauty, doing, right? That's the beauty now because I have done it so long. I know what, when, where, and how to do what I'm supposed to do. My motto is, when in doubt, leave it out. And I was taught that by somebody else, you know. And so I pride myself in any situation, knowing who I'm going to go work for, what they're intellectually involved with. And then, see, I'm lucky. I'm luckier than most guys because I can do straight stand-up. First 15 minutes, 20 minutes of my show, I do straight stand-up. And by then, I've got a good feel of where I can take this audience. How far I could push that envelope to the edge and not have it fall off and offend anybody or hurt anybody or, or say something that's wrong. And that, you know, I've had to work on that for the last probably 15 years, uh, maybe close to 20 years when all this politically correct stuff started. And it's, 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 um, and you found that line sort of receding. Yes. Oh, it's, it's a much smaller, much smaller space. Uh, somebody sneeze could blow that envelope off of the table nowadays. And I don't worry too much about it because I have a lot of confidence in who I am and what I mean behind what I'm doing. The gentleness and the kindness of which I'm delivering my stuff, you know, I've developed that character prior to. So when I get there, people know it's a joke. They know it. And I make enough fun of myself that if I poke fun at you once or twice, if you can't laugh at yourself, then... I don't know. The rest of your life's going to be pretty miserable <laughs> because we fump, stumble, and fall so often. You got to laugh at yourself. You've got to be amused. Even now, I'm 61 years old, and I say that, but I don't feel it at all. I, in my mind, I'm somewhere in my late 30s, and and I'm amused because even now I do some silly, immature things. And it's like an out-of-body experience because my mind is here and it's looking down at what I'm doing, what I've said, or what is happening. And I'm going, you're acting like a little kid. And I want to say, well, I am a little kid. It's all a state of mind. And I'm having fun. And so forgive me if I'm having fun. To me, it's just I'm walking my life. Are you still, do you get surprised uh, performing occasionally uh, now from lines or from the audience giving you feedback or have you, yes. do you feel like you have heard you know when I connect everything. when I connect to an audience it's a beautiful thing right now I'll be honest with you and I and I pass this along as a great great piece of advice there's more people over 50 than there are under 50 living in the United States today so be cognizant of these older people Give them love and respect. Try to take them back to their youth. I learned, I worked with Henny Youngman, Maury Amsterdam, Professor Irwin Corey, Louis Nye, Rosemary, Marty Allen, Dick Van Dyke. I learned from all of these people that I watched as kids. And I worked for a week with them. And Henny Youngman was sitting in the back of the show at Chuckles Comedy Club in Tempe, Arizona, the night my dad came to see me. when you're performing nightclubs and I mean I, I'm a performer and every time I do a show where it doesn't seem like I connected with the audience or 
something may have went wrong, I'm my own worst enemy. You yes, know, we are. Taking it, and you go backstage. It, we beat ourselves up. Exactly. And we constantly do it. It's like, you know, I, we did a sh- I did a show and Jay helped me and I still beat myself up. Like, oh, it was a horrible show. But no, it was good. Like, no, I didn't. How do you, how do you overcome that? Well, I can tell you that I, I, and I'm not being arrogant or what anything, but man, I don't have too many bad shows anymore. I really, really have got it honed down. You cannot go on a cruise ship and have a bad show to be your last show. So, I'm I'm real comfortable. Man, my, I think my show is really good from beginning to end. I don't think I have a lull. See, most people they only see me do two or three things in these conventions. Most magicians really don't know my entire act because I always get requested to do the card on forehead, then the lady rope routine, or six card repeat. They've never seen me do spiral. They've never seen me do silk and egg. They don't know how well my spiral goes because I have my own music to it. They don't know my instant magician. Uh, they've never seen me do that, which they'll see me do tonight. And it's not like anybody else's because it's not the magic. It's the moment that I create for the kid. So I don't, the kid doesn't look like he's doing magic. It's just a moment that I create. And um, my mentalism thing. I do Professor's Nightmare, and I do a great routine, and the lay people love it. My act works. It's very commercial, very acceptable. I mean, uh, I was so it was so fun. I had a smaller crowd on the ship the other night, maybe maybe six hundred people instead of twelve hundred people. And when I finished, they all jumped to their feet. They all stood up and gave me a standing ovation. It wasn't one of these where you look around and, and okay, maybe I better stand. The front row stood right up and everybody right after me. I just don't have a bad show. But when I do, if I do, it probably wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It just wasn't as good as it, as I know it could be. And that happens to all of us. We got to take that with a grain of salt. We got to just go, you know what, man? Um, as long as I didn't hurt anybody, as long as nobody, no blood was shed, I'm okay. This is, you know... Uh, it may have been, it may not have been my best show, but it certainly wasn't my worst show. And, and we're just, when you work as much as we work, hundreds of shows a year, sure, you're going to have a flat crowd. Maybe it wasn't us. Maybe it was the fucking crowd. Maybe they were tired. I've been on a ship where they were out all day, and it was the late show, and they decided to come to the show, and they were just tired. And I, and I say to them, you know what? I feel you. Feel you. I know you guys are tired, so just smile really big for me if you can't laugh out loud. And I remind them that it's a live show, and they're part of the success. I give what I get, you know. So you got to give me a little something back. And if you're honest with the audience and you tell them that, you know, you're saying, you know, uh, don't hold back if you think it's funny. Somehow, and I'm able to play around with it and word it in such a way where I'm not coming right out and saying, hey, you fuckers, wake up and applaud. <laughs> going, hey, you should remember you're having a good time. If you die tomorrow, you want to go out saying to yourself, man, last night sucked. I didn't have a good time and now I'm dead. You know, so a lot of it, a lot of times, entertainers, remember, some of the responsibility lies with the audience as well. And remember that a paying audience is more receptive than a free audience. And free audiences are everywhere, i.e. cruise ships and all that other stuff, you know. So it's it's all, just don't beat yourself up too much because your heart's in the right place. You know if you went out there to be malicious or if you went out there to be entertaining. If you went out there and gave it 100%, walk away and just say, okay, it was one of those nights. 
tomorrow's going to be better. And, and maybe I'll even, you know, I'll try a little harder tomorrow. You know, I used to become, I used to be, I spent a little bit of time complacent. I let everything lie on my act and, and, and how good it was. And I wasn't giving it that physical energy or that physical character. I wasn't really in the, in the moment. I wasn't giving it that character. So remember, when you do develop a character, you know, remember to use it. And, and so I'm having a lot of fun these days because I, I'm remembering who that character was. And, and it's only because I've been doing it for so long that I, I stopped. I didn't give it. I didn't. I didn't let him go all the time. I just thought I wanted to be too sophisticated. You know, I wanted to be too, too just refined. And oh, here I am. And I think you should just already be liking me and loving me. And my act should be serving itself. And no, you got to remember: be in the moment, give it a hundred percent. And I just. Uh I think we have one more question. Well, I was going to ask, oh, yeah. kind of a follow-up to that. Please, um, anything. I mean, <laughs> I know that I've given you more than you ever yeah, needed. Yeah. been awesome. More um, than you wanted, but I'm, I'm you know what? I've had, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm doing, getting ready to do a penguin thing on the 13th. Nice. Yeah. And uh, I tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> I said, Dude, have me you need to get the other guys that do all the magic you guys are trying to pitch or do all the things you want to sell and that. Just a guy, a comedy magician guy that knows a few things. And so if you let me share some other things I'm working on, I'll come and do it for you. Like I'm designing some tables. I'm designing an awesome microphone prop. Oh, right. You're going to be able to do magic tricks with, man. It's it's hollow and it's got the thing. You can put a prediction in the sponge if you want it. And I come out with my countryman on, but I tell the audience that we're having problems with my countryman, so i got to use this microphone here for a few minutes. It's already out on stage, and I have a gimmick. I come out carried on, and I have a silk egg routine in my hand where if the person, I go to hand the microphone off, and here comes a silk that falls right out in my hand, and it's immediate magic right before you start. And I'm already loaded with the egg in my hand because my hand is natural around the microphone. Right. And these are things that's going to help guys out. You, we, we're, I was brainstorming with Shudo Gawa last night, and I was with Scott Hitchcock uh, a couple weeks, and we were talking about loads. We were talking about ditches. We were talking about productions, all kinds of things we could do with this. And when you see it, it's as light as a feather. It will float on a visible thread. Wow, and I can't wait to. So I'm taking that with me. Uh, I've got to finish the prototypes when I go home. I've got a couple of weeks at home before I go do that. And, and so I'm, I'm sharing some things that I think are helpful to magicians and, and, and ideas that, you know, I do my own tables. I design all my own tables and I do all my own hangovers. And so I'm sharing this and showing guys, man, you don't got to go spend a thousand dollars for a nice looking table. You can make it at your own. You can take an existing table and really make it look nice. I can show you how to take an in-stand and make it look like a $700 table just with a little bit of material and, and Velcro. So these are the things I think are useful. And I'm going to save magicians a ton of money. You know, um, I'm tired. Of- Back to like. Magicians were craftsmen for a long time. We built our own props, yes. designed their own, but now it's turned into a much more commercial endeavor where... And the only people managed. that are happy about it are the manufacturers. Yeah, and guys, and you, you also have more respect for your props when you build them yourself. You bet. You bet. You're like, I put the time and effort into it. I'm going to treat it right or better than, oh, I only spent $30. I was buying it. And I think it's going to serve other guys well. My tables that I'm designing are, are like, this is about the exact size. But I have a side that's cut down for a manipulator to ditch. This, if you were to imagine the front of it, I've cut a hole here and put material over it and tassels so you could pull something out of here and have this all look solid again so people won't know. I want to produce a rabbit. Nobody produces a rabbit out of the hat. Nobody. 
I want to get a little dwarf rabbit. I want to set him in there. As I set my cane down, I reach back with my top hat. I pull him right out of the front of this box. And he's already in my hat. <laughs> so when I, and the hat is collapsed. So when the hat pops open, the rabbit comes right out. And the audience is stunned. It is. It's going to be when people see it. And I'm going to sell them naked. Or I will design whatever it is you want. And mine are all, right now it's red, white, and blue. It's my red, white, and blue, uh, you know, act. And then the other one is the nightclub act. You'll see the suit that I wear tonight. Nobody's ever seen me wear this suit. But I wear this other suit because it's, it, I look like old school magician. Like like Harry Blackstone. Wears. Just nice clothes, but, but the jacket is nice and subtle. A la Hobson, Jeff Hobson, but not quite as flashy as Jeff. I'm not that guy, you know. Um, and I, I don't want to share these things with these guys. It's not a trick, man. It's to help your act look better and, and help you feel better. And man, the manipulators, I think they're going to like the box because I, I spent time with Luffy Nielsen. Oh yeah. And I spent time with Jeff McBride. I showed them all four prototypes, and they all gave me their feedback. They pack about this flat, wow. this size, and it's, it goes in a 25-inch suitcase, and it packs about that high. That's, That's awesome. great. Oh yeah. It's all Velcro and hinges. And then what I did was I have Norm Nielsen tables. You know, his tables. Yeah. So I bought flanges and I put them on the back. So now I can get I can get those tables in that same suitcase, the legs and the and the stems. Is it heavy? They... I'm under fifty pounds. That's great. And that's two tables, two full tables. Damn. With Drake Harry on right there. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially for the pressure guys. It's, especially for anybody that's traveling. Travel. I had to have my shoulder fixed because I tore it carrying all my props and all my suitcases and all my clothes back through airports for 30 years. And I wore this sucker out. Not literally. <laughs> Bicep, tricep, labrium, scap, and rotator cuff. There's five little incisions on my shoulder. You been on the course yet? June 8th. No. Um, I start swinging at a club. When I go home, uh, chipping and putting, and then I'll develop. I just now I'm able to get my arm back and start throwing a baseball overhand. Nice. And that was what my agreement was with my therapist. I did three weeks, three weeks for four months. And and I said, when I leave here, I've got to be able to reach around the front. i got to be able to put my car on the forehead, and I've got to be able to start throwing a baseball because I do a lot of things with major league alumni. And uh, I want to go back to playing baseball with all these old pros, and that's, that's my love. I also, when I go home from here, I signed up. My wife went down, and so God, she did. I want to, I've always wanted to learn to fly fish. Oh, yeah. So I've got three fly fish classes when I go home in the month of November. And, and these are the things that take me away from magic. So when I come back to magic, I'm rejuvenated, and I'm happy, and I'm grateful. That's what I want to do. And not enough guys get away from it. Not enough guys. They eat, drink, and sleep magic every single day of their lives. Right. And that's where you get burned out. That's yeah. when you lose flavor. Right. That's when you lose the sparkle and all that matters. So, golf, fishing, what other? Harley Davidson's. Harley -Davidson. I have two motorcycles. Right. Um, I like, the, I like the, the putting green you put in your back. Uh, it's just been done. I haven't even gone home to see it, it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even been home to see it yet. But, uh, cars are a passion of mine. Yeah, you have a pretty nice hot rod. I mean, you've seen my little hot rod. Yeah. So you followed me a lot. That, yeah. I, that means a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, yeah, every, every time you post, it pops up on my Facebook. I always see what you're doing, so. I'm waiting for people to unfollow me, probably. I, no, I don't I don't think it's going to happen. But my life now, when I post things, uh, I went and spent a week with Kozak. 
Kozak, there's a guy you should try to interview because he has a strong character and he needs the he needs to share what he does because there's nobody that's come through darkness like he has because he was an acute alcoholic for a long time and I was with him in the dark days and now he's in a beautiful place and he changed me man you go to my Facebook page there's no more political shit there's no more stuff to argue about I made a post and I said no more of this stuff I'm sorry I apologize the world was getting the best of me if I post anything it's all positive stuff it's all fun stuff I post it to share with you if you don't like it scroll on by please don't leave nasty comments because I'm now going to delete you you are not my friend you are an annoyance you, you are somebody that I don't need in my life. You're a negativity. And lo and behold, man, nobody does any of that shit anymore. And when they do, um, they're gone. I don't care anymore because Facebook, I screwed up. I put too many fans on my personal Facebook page. I think everybody did that. Yeah, a lot of people did because you, you'll, be, you'll be like, oh, I'll just be my friend. It's like, well, I can't. You have too many. Yeah, so normally people will have a... Uh a personal one, and then they'll have like their entertainment like thing. Well, I have a fan page, and I wish I could get the fans over there. But and, and I really, when I look at what I, what the feedback I get, I only got a couple hundred people that really chime in every once in a while that I should have on there. The other four thousand and five hundred of them, I should just delete them tomorrow. But I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, you know. Community people that come to you for some reason. Yes. They're there. They want to be there. Even though they don't chime they in. don't interact, they're getting yeah, to exactly. it a lot of times. Yeah. So, yeah. But Paul Kozak, man, yeah, give Paul a call. That is a good... Give him, because he's out in Kona, Hawaii, and he has a strong character. He has this toe thing, you know, he does. Yeah. And and he's, he's self-made, and he's worked so bad, so hard. And I think he could, you know what, he's much more intellectual than I am, more philosophical than I am. He, he expresses himself more eloquently than I do, uh, but he says fuck three times as much as I do. <laughs> we, uh, we, I interviewed Amazing Jonathan, so there's nothing you can say on this that I haven't heard. <laughs> you know, I used to have my bones with him, but I accept him. He's got demons that are so great. I can't believe that he's still alive. You know, and I was talking to Simone Marin. She says he's still doing meth every day. That breaks my heart. Because here he is complaining about dying of a heart attack. Well, fuck, you're doing it every day to yourself. But it's an addiction. And it's one of the worst. And I, and I now am, I have so much empathy and so much, I feel so sorry for him because he achieved so much. Uh, such grand things that he got and the amount of money that he made and why would you need to escape with drugs anymore? I mean, I quit drinking in 94. I, I now smoke pot because it helps me with my shoulder and it helps me to sleep at night. My internal clock is off. If I sleep for two hours at any given time of the day, I'm thankful because I can't sleep at night. I kicked her wake up and Nobody knows that. Nobody's aware of that because they haven't traveled and had to go places. And I've never missed an airplane flight. I've never missed a ship. I've never missed but one gig, and that was 9-11 at this very event 15 years ago, 14 years ago. I was supposed to be here, and I quickly shut down all the airports. Um, but my clock is gone. My, my body clock is just out of whack. 
And uh, so I sleep when I can, and I'm up doing what I do when I do. And uh, there's so much about this business that the average person will never know. The average magician, the home guy, be careful what you wish for. I never wished for it, so I just had to live it. This is where I'm at. This is what I can tell you to be the truth. That mimics my experience with magic as well, where it wasn't ever like, here's the idea, I'm going to end up on TV somewhere or whatever, and things just started happening in your... <laughs> when, I made it to, when I made it to Star Search, that was, I didn't even... And I did straight stand I didn't do magic. And then when I got on the Sunday Comics on the Fox Network, I got on four or five of those, man, and that, I couldn't believe it, man, I, just this guy that doesn't crazy. Here I am. And you like me that much? Okay, great. Then I got on Sunday Comics with Lenny Clark, and that was that was really classy. And then Evening at the Improv with Shirley Jones, and and then a bunch of World's Greatest Magic and with Gary Willette, and then World's Wildest Magic, and then these Masters of Illusion shows. And man, I I don't know. I I'm glad I'm not. I, I wouldn't want to be a superstar. I wouldn't want to be somebody that couldn't go to the grocery store. And when I do do get recognized. It's not only a treat for me, but it's a treat for them. And it's, it's in a little once in a while, and it's great. You know, I love it. Are you Michael Finney? And yeah, you know, and, and I don't have the big whacked out hair too much anymore. And I only do my hair really when I'm going to be on stage. You know, otherwise, I, I like being incognito. But, um, yeah, the, the other things that I do, and I love my wife so much. How, how, how many weeks out of the year are you on the road these days? You know, I was weird staying at home from June the 8th when I had this surgery till October the 9th. Right. And I looked around and I said, wow, I got a pretty nice house. <laughs> <laughs> hanging out here. You know, for a little while. And so now, I won't lie to you, I go when I get a call. Yeah. I'm, I don't turn down anything. Money is not an issue anymore. <laughs> I make my big bank once, you know, a couple, three, four times a year, I make Seventy five hundred to ten thousand and twelve thousand dollar gigs, which I laugh at. It's the same show I'm doing for two thousand dollars if somebody calls me, and I'll go across town for somebody for a couple hundred bucks if I know it's for the right thing in the right place and for the right people, you know, because it's just the value of what you place on things in return of what you're getting personally gratified, and that's why I started the foundation nineteen years ago, and and I get so much back from that. I don't mind doing charity work because there's not enough of it out there. And now working with the Wounded Warrior Project and the Hope for the Warriors, um, I, I, I'm, I've taken all the success I've gotten and I've used it to help others. And man, that's a beautiful thing. So it's I go out whenever whenever somebody calls me. I'm happy now to be on Carnival. They fly me on, they fly me off. And the ladies that book me know that I'm getting great reviews. So they say, Michael, would you like to do two ships in one week? Yeah, would I like to double my net? One week, yeah. I fly on a ship, do that show, get that check, wait at a port, get on the next ship, do my gig, and fly home after that. That's five grand. And then I'm home. And then if they call me, anything over that is crazy. My nut is about three, about $3,000 a month now. I own a home. I own land in Texas and four other states. That's all paid for. I've spent my money wisely, I think, but I've pissed away a lot, too. But I had too much of it probably at one time but not enough to where I'm not taking care of myself and where I'm at now. And once again, probably more than you wanted to know. But when I when I get a chance to do an interview, I want to tell you the truth. No, no. Like, uh, I want to tell you the good with the bad. What we do is in in the book is we take 
different sections. I know you'll dissect it. Yeah, we'll dissect it, but we do an audio portion where you can listen to the whole interview, and of course, we'll cut out a couple of things. But Yeah, because it's not necessary. I'm For me, I did it for me. With you today, I, I had to do it for me just to oh, get it off fun. my chest and out of my mind. I'm glad we could help. <laughs> oh, man, you I, I would have cost me $500 for a therapist. <laughs> Yeah. You know, but all these things that have been running around in my mind and the little hamster is so confused because he runs this way, then he runs this way, and the wheel's going that way, and he can't get up, you know, and he's just been fucked. I needed this. More than you bargained for today, guys. I'm sorry. No, thank you. The Reed sisters are going to have a hard interview to talk But I think if you chose me to do this, you're my friend. And I think it's important. You know as much about me as I can tell you. Thank you. Honestly, <laughs> can't lie. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank. You.